Welcome to Invoking Witchcraft, the podcast where the sacred and profane come out to play. So call the quarters and set the round. It's time for another episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Invoking Witchcraft. My name is Britton, and I'm here with my fabulous, wonderful, and sweet co-host. Jay Allen Cross. Very happy to be here. Always excited. How are you doing, Jay? What's up? What's new? Uh, You know, lots and lots of new things happening in the life right now. Um, I'm having... A, a bit of a tower moment, but it's very positive where it's like, yes, everything is being destroyed, but also in a very good way because it needs to be. Um, we're currently leaving a very toxic situation that includes us leaving not only my husband's job, but also the place that we live mm-hmm. because those are kind of tied together. And it was a terribly toxic situation that we're currently leaving. And I have to tell you guys that magic is real. (laughs) When this whole thing started, I lit up um, a candle that was just kind of like, you know, anti-hex, send away the bad energy, like clean everything up just to make sure that we were, you know, just cleaning up the energy around that because it was all whatever. And let me tell you, I have never had a candle turn tar black all the way down the glass. I was using a Novena candle and the whole thing is like thick, layer oh no and then i had burned a guardian angel candle next to it so it was like cool like clean up the bad energy have a little guardian angel protection and as soon as the uh the the cleansing candle went out the guardian angel candle that was burning clear suddenly started going black all the way up it like immediately. Yeah. So like you knew it was like transferring over and stuff was still working and and getting cleansed. So I have been continuing to burn cleansing candles and this last one looks normal finally. Um, But it just goes to show like, you know, if you, if you have toxic, nasty energy around you, anything like that, that is happening, do your cleansings, do your cleansing regularly anyway, just, you know, this stuff is very real. So definitely take a moment and, and, uh, take care of yourself in that respect. It's important. It really is. Spiritual cleansing upkeep is, is really great and awesome when you're doing it regularly. Um, yeah, I like to take my weekly baths just to keep things flowing and moving and stuff. And, yeah, well, I am just sending you vibes. Gonna light a candle for you and uh, pray that your situation um, clear up because out of the rubble of the tower comes like new things, right? Yes, it does. Comes the star. I'm gonna be like a little dandelion coming up out of the ashes. I'm gonna, it's gonna be amazing. So the future looks very bright. Um, good. But how are you? Everything doing good with you? Yes, I've had a pretty crazy morning. I've been making lotions for my shop update coming up on April 16th. I have been answering emails, communicating with people. My dog started barking when the mailman showed up. It was just like chaos. And then I flew in here, like you had said earlier, on my broomstick, came to a halt. (laughs) I'm ready. (laughs) I'm ready to podcast. But I'm also very, very caffeinated. Um, So I'm I'm ready. Excellent. Excellent. That sounds like the perfect time to bring on our special guest who we are 
so incredibly stoked to have on here because this is a person I wanted to speak to on the podcast since the very beginning, someone who um, I love listening to because every time I read their articles or listen to their interviews, I just feel smarter afterwards. Um, and also I, I am so incredibly glad that they are so patient because this is like the eighth time we've tried to record this um, and the internet uh, has not been with us, but I think uh, knock on wood, we may have figured it out. So without further ado, Lilith Dorsey, how are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Hopefully, knock wood, we have this all figured out. And it's a joy to be here because I've been a fan of yours for the longest time. So it's great that we can get this going on and have a conversation like these conversations are so important. So I'm highly caffeinated as well. Uh, <laughs> we spent last night um, selling sunflowers for donations to the Ukraine. So we were out at a benefit until uh, midnight about. So, um, yeah, <laughs> it's like that. <laughs> that's great. I love that you're selling sunflowers. I think that that's you know, not only good to benefit Ukraine, but also bring a little, a little color, a little joy to people, a little sunflower magic. Yeah, 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 you know, and then we figured as we're riding around town, we can see people with sunflowers in their yard and think, hey, maybe that was because, you know, they were at our Ukrainian benefit and got some seeds from us and made the world a little bit more beautiful, you know? Mm -hmm. Exactly. That's wonderful. Oh, thank you so much for joining us here. Um, so we like to start off with a couple of really basic kind of icebreakers here to help you know people get to know you before we dive into all the nitty gritty. Uh, the first thing we like to ask you is um, if there's anything you would like to share with us about your astrology, uh, maybe your big three or anything interesting that kind of sticks out um, that might explain you or anything like that that you want to share. Uh, I don't I don't know. Well, my astrology probably does explain me, but <laughs> my sun is in Aries and my moon and my rising is in Libra. That makes for an odd type of balance, unbalance situation. But it's funny because I wrote the book on water magic and I have almost nothing in water at all. So mm -hmm. that made me laugh. But we all have water in our bodies and the planet's made of mostly water. So I feel like, you know, water is an element that we literally can't live without, you know, mm -hmm. So definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, with my astrology, I also have like no water in my chart, but it's interesting because I find myself gravitating towards what I, I lack in my astrological chart, elementally speaking. Um, I do gravitate towards water. I want to understand it better because it's something that seems very foreign to me. So that's really interesting. You, you wrote a book on water magic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it wasn't the publishers decided that, you know, it's a Llew series from Llewellyn and I was going to start it off and water was going to be first because they release them seasonally. So but the more I started thinking about it, you know, I mean, in the uh, Lukumi tradition, I'm dedicated to Oshun, who is the Orisha of, you know, the river water and things like that. And I've always lived near water. I grew up in Brooklyn, right next to the East River, where it goes, you know, the Verrazano Bridge, and it goes out to the ocean. So it's like this kind of like river ocean energy. And here in New Orleans, I live right next to the Mississippi and a couple of blocks from the canal. So again, it's like different waterways are right here. Mm, mm -hmm. Beautiful. I love that. And that airy sun with, with the Libra um, behind it, that, that's a lot of justice right there. Yes. 
It is. It is. Our spiritual house is dedicated to Mama Brigitte and she's for sort of social injustice and racial injustice. And and when we were trying to decide what direction we were going to take, it was kind of obvious to all of us. It was just like so many of us are BIPOC or LGBTQ. And it was just like we face these issues every day, you know, and this is something that is we can't ignore and we must continue to fight. So, yeah, I guess that that does have an interesting kind of like dun, 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 justice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'd say it was written in the stars for you. Yeah, 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 definitely. My grandfather was a lawyer, too. And uh, so but he was he was the state liquor commissioner and he was a lawyer and he had all these great entertainment clients like Angela Lansbury and stuff he used to come over the house. It was crazy. But then he took a bribe and he went to prison. So <laughs> justice is a double edged sword. It definitely is. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So our next question that we like to ask is quite open ended. Um, there's no right or wrong answer to this. Um, how do you identify? Like, how would you describe your identity? Oh, that's hard. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, I always felt very magical. I always felt like a witch, even, you know, since I knew there was a word for such a thing. I was in Lutheran school. So there was that whole kind of, you know, Christian framework. But I just saw the Bible as spells. I realized when you read them, magical things happened. You know, my favorite story is they made me the Virgin Mary when I was four years old and they gave me a real baby. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I sat on stage for two hours with a real baby and it didn't cry. Like I love babies. So, but to me thinking of that now, I was like, they gave me a real baby and put me up there on stage. But I saw kind of like divine feminine thing. And I must keep the baby quiet and do the performance. And like (laughs) I got through it. I rocked it, you know? So I think for me, I've always associated with this alternative, even though it's not alternative spirituality, that's just the corner it's been pushed into with the patriarchy for thousands of years, you know, but I always felt more comfortable with the divine feminine. My parents named me Lilith, you know, so I just had that whole kind of identity growing up and things like that. But I have 12 fingers, you know, so that always made me feel like a witch. I have those weird witchy marks, you know, <laughs> so mm-hmm. it was like, hey, something's up with this one. So I just sort of embraced it, you know, I, love I guess that. I, I'm some sort of dark night, witchy priestess woman. That's how I identify, I guess, in a good way, you know, <laughs> yes, goals. Yeah. <laughs> that is awesome. I have I've never ran across somebody who has 12 fingers and that's like the witchiest thing ever. <laughs> like Yeah, they cut them off. Apparently it's like uh, a tribe in Kenya or something, but they cut them off when I was a baby. And my daughter Nia, we only cut one off and she kept looking for it under the couch, which I think was the most hilarious thing. Like everything that's loft is under the couch, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh my god, that's amazing. <laughs> Why did you want that, mom? Yeah, yeah. But no, it's, yeah, it's a thing. Polydactyl, yeah, it's a thing. Wow. Wow. That's so cool. That Uh, is super witchy. Yeah, yeah. They say Anne Boleyn, I guess, had it, you know? So, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And I remember going to, um, supposedly buried in the Tower of London, but nobody knows where. And uh, I was there and I asked the guards, I was like, where's Anne Boleyn buried? And he went right there. So either he was lying or that's what he says to everybody (laughs) or or my spidey senses were working and I found Anne Boleyn. (laughs) 
she always seems so cool to me. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Who are you, Henry? I am a witch. Blah. You know? <laughs> yeah. And it didn't end well for her, but you know. Yeah. That point in history, you know, witchy, witchy ladies. <laughs> no, I know. It was a rough, was a rough life. Still yeah. a rough life, but different rough. Mm-hmm. For sure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I love this because I think your background, um, and we're going to talk about kind of your anthropology background here in a moment, um, really makes you kind of perfect for this episode that we're starting with today. The first half of this episode, we're going to have you help us um, clear up some of the stuff that we're working with online as far as, uh, you know, closed practices, cultural appropriation or misappropriation, things like that, which um, right now we're very concerned with, especially online, which is, which is good. Um, but also I think sometimes we, we lose track of things a little bit or mix things up a little bit. And so, uh, we're going to try and kind of find some clarity in all of this and see, um, what we're doing right, what we might want to change and all of that. And so I'm very glad to have you here helping us out with that. Um, so can you start by telling us a little bit about your anthropology background? Well, it was kind of confusing because, you know, I always wanted to be a filmmaker. I wanted to make experimental documentaries, which I went to NYU in film for my undergrad in the late 80s. And that was almost unheard of, experimental documentary and everything like that. And then I got pregnant with my oldest daughter and uh, I had to drop out in my senior year guess technically I'm still on a leave of absence. <laughs> That's what they told me. I'm on a leave of absence forever. And then I went and there was no film program where I was living in New England. So I always loved anthropology. It seemed like the a beautiful thing. I mean, I'm a person, you're per- people, you know, like I want to understand more about people, more about cultures, more about that complex whole that makes magic and religion and spirituality and all those things come to fruition. So I got my undergrad in anthropology. I had, you know, a really crappy teacher who told me there's no such thing as magic and witchcraft. And that's really one of the reasons I started writing because I wanted my daughters to have a pause, be able to pick up a book that was positive about African goddesses and African spirituality, you know, Mm -hmm. and uh, there wasn't anything out there like that. So I just wanted to prove him wrong. And I had another wonderful teacher, even though she wasn't witchy. She was one of the staff archaeologists for Stonehenge. So that brought all of this kind of other elements of magic to my study, you know, in a, in a deep and meaningful way, you know. So that was great. And then I went on and got my graduate degree in, it's a dual program they have in cinema studies and anthropology. And uh, so, and you got to make a documentary. I made a documentary about New Orleans voodoo. It was great. We met Jodie Foster on the plane. <laughs> I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. And oddly enough, it's called Bodies of Water. And I made it a year before Katrina happened. So about the connection between the water and spirit in New Orleans, you know, so that was really fascinating to me. And it's changed so much over the years. But I'm glad you asked me this question because I was really thinking about it this morning. There's so many authors out there that I feel like come to it not from an anthropology point of view. And certainly since I did my undergraduate work and much more since then, there's this real authenticity of voice that they stress in anthropology. I went back 
maybe, I don't know, probably about six, seven years ago now, we have reunions. And one of my uh, classmates, he was studying the Amazon rainforest and the people who live there. And he had gone back with cameras because now the thing is you give the actual indigenous people the cameras and let them tell their story. And their story was he was supposed to play the white man with the really bad Spanish and they were going to beat him up and rob him. So that was <laughs> the video that they made. And he took it back to everybody and showed it to all over universities and everything like that and I just loved that I would they thought it was hysterical and everybody had a good time you know like that that was their version of what happened you know so let's get it going on and uh, but I, I think that so many people today, you know, sort of speaking to cultural appropriation, think they can just take and do whatever they want to, you know, and, and people did do that in anthropology. But that was 120 years ago. You know, at this point, it's really shifted towards this is your practices. You're the, you know, I don't want to say native, but you're the indigenous people. You're the people within the culture. And we want you to tell us what you think is important about what mm -hmm. it is, what you think we should know. And maybe that's not everything. And that's okay. You know, we have to, we have to respect that and really take that to heart and act accordingly. And, and that's what I think is missing in a lot of people's spirituality, a lot of newbies, a lot of, you know, people that don't have the same background that I have. Mm. Mm. I think that's so powerful. This idea of yeah, maybe we don't have to tell you everything. Maybe we don't have to divulge these secret things. And I think that's really important because I think right now where we live in an area of, inf of information and also kind of an, an era of, of a lot of entitlement too, there's this feeling of I if I'm being kept out of something or if something is being withheld from me, then I'm, you know, it's, it's, it's a personal attack of some sort or anything like that. But truth is, is that sometimes some of these things, it's, it's okay not to know, or it's okay not to have to divulge all the secrets. And mystery. Whatnot. Yeah. Mystery. Mm -hmm. Important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the deities in Haiti were for a long time called mystere or mysteries. You know what I mean? That there was this unknown element to it. And Part of me likes to equate everything to cooking. I'm a big foodie. I have a cookbook out there if anybody wants to see it. And, you know, if you ask somebody's great grandmother for their special recipe for whatever, they're not going to give it to you. They'll give you something that tastes okay. You can eat it, but they're not going to tell you those secrets, 11 herbs and spices or whatever, you know, right. that's theirs and they own that and you can share that with them if they choose, but they're not going to tell you how to make it. So you can set up shop across the street and try and put them out of business. Business. That's mm -hmm. not what this is about. It reminds me of Brunswick stew in my family because uh, I'm from Georgia and Brunswick stew is very regional and cultural and like um, it, the recipes are generally held very secret. So, yeah, I could not imagine my Grammy -o handing out her recipe to just anyone. There's, oh, no. there's a layer of mystery to it, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. And something too, that I think that we're seeing, at least something that I'm seeing a lot of is where if we have something like a closed practice or a closed tradition where they're like, Hey, everybody, we're not going to be handing you guys these mysteries. Then people have a tendency to kind of go, Oh, well then I can just make stuff up. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And that's something that we're kind of running into as well, that I will probably have you speak to that in, in just a moment. But um, I was wondering if right off the bat, you can help our listeners with a little bit of um, kind of vocabulary of, of certain anthropology terms 
um, that we've come across that might be nice to add to kind of our, our daily conversations. Um, can you tell us a little bit of the difference between something like cultural appropriation and cultural misappropriation? Oh, okay. I like that. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I think obviously we're talking about this idea of taking things from other cultures when we're talking about either appropriation or misappropriation, you know, and I think there are ways to incorporate things respectfully, appropriate respectfully, appropriate as needed, you know, mm -hmm. in the sense of, oh, okay, well, you know, maybe it's a life or death situation, be it medical or legal or whatever. And your friend comes over and they found this, you know, root in the backyard and you get just get this feeling that you should stick this root in your pocket when you go to court or when you go to the doctor's appointment. I think that's okay. It's another thing if we're going, oh, okay, you know, when we had the whole Black Lives Matter thing, I had a lot of people hitting me up in my inbox saying that, you know, on the one hand, that they had a spiritual supply company, they were selling some of these traditional hoodoo roots like High John or Low John or, or things like that. And, and people were asking for donations for people that were out there fighting and protesting on the streets for their lives. Mm -hmm. And some people just gave it. Some people were like, well, how dare you? You know, <laughs> and unfortunately, as my friends like to say, it's not, you know, BIPOC's job to explain to white folks what they should be doing. But <laughs> in that scenario, it was like, hey, look, you're making money off of this. You make a a lot of money off of this. You're one of the top retailers for these products out there. These people are fighting for their lives. If the shoe were on the other foot, you know, maybe you're upset that they didn't ask nicer, but again, it's life and death for them and their babies, you know, and, mm -hmm. uh, that puts a whole nother light onto it. So maybe, you know, send over some roots or some herbs if you're asked, or maybe donate or be charitable when you can. You know, I, I mentioned going out last night for the Ukraine and some people would just look at us when we asked for donations, like, screw you. And I'm just like, huh, you know, <laughs> like, you're out here in New Orleans, you're drinking, you're partying, you could care less that there are people that are fighting for their lives or children, families, all of that. And mm -hmm. uh, I don't know, I can't live like that. That just makes me sound, you know, it's one thing if you can't afford it. It's another thing if you're just like, screw you, I'm going to take, take, take and and not think about where it came from and how I can give back. Yeah, right. Absolutely. I think it comes down to a lot of just being a good person at the end of the yeah. day, a lot of the times, you yeah. know, and it's like, like you were saying, like, um, you know, people kept asking me like, you know, like, can I use the information in your book? And I'm like, well, yeah. Like if, like you're saying, like, if there is an emergency situation and all you have is my Mexican American version to fix it, use it like that is okay. But if you then like repackage it and try and sell it and it waters it down and all that stuff, then it's like, okay, then we're going, going into misappropriation here, which is like when we are mishandling it, when we are, when we are not doing this well or right, or having respect, you know, I think a lot of it just comes down to respect at the end of the day for the people, for the culture, for the tradition, all of it. Yeah. And, and to me, that's really like cultural rape. I don't even want to say misappropriation, because if you're taking from me and you're using it, literally like using it and abusing it and profiting off it, then we have a whole nother thing going on. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and 
that's not right. You know, it's, it's so not right. A friend of mine sent me a meme the other day about how like, you know, the earth was young and the one animal would eat one tree and it was okay. But now we've just like used up all the resources and nobody sees a cause and effect and nobody wants to make those sacrifices and, and do the things, you know, one of the best rituals I ever went to was uh, up in Vermont and they had somebody who was about like nine and a half months pregnant, <laughs> veiled in black, be Mother Earth. And she just went through the circle going, I saw you. I saw you put that plastic in the garbage instead of the recycling. You know, it was <laughs> great. It was about like Earth making everybody accountable for everything. Mm, and, and that's oh really, God. I think, the reality of the situation. Maybe you don't see it in that image of somebody coming up and yelling in your face, but you're going to yeah. feel it with the weather changes, climate change, all of that stuff, you know, shortages, all of that is, is going to impact you more and more as we move forward. And we have a duty to our children and their children and their earth itself to just try and make what changes we can in order to make a better place. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. What we're seeing a lot online right now is a lot of there, there can be no mixing of cultures. Cultures cannot touch or interact or, or have any sort of exchange happening. And when I was kind of preparing for this, I found some terms like cultural diffusion and cultural exchange um, in which sometimes it's okay to have trade and to have back and forth and, and ideas and, and items and stuff like that. Um, is that something that in this day and age, we still like, how, how does that fit in? Again, I think it was something that was a lot more easily swallowed, I guess, is the right word, um, mm -hmm. you know, 100 years ago. I mentioned that we're the house of Mama Brigitte. Here in New Orleans, there was a huge influx of Haitians as well as a huge influx of Irish, you know, for a very long time. So is there blending between, you know, St. Bridget, you know, the goddess Brigitte and Mama Brigitte? Obviously, there were because these people were living next door to each other. They were, you know, partying together. They were ritualing together with Marie Laveau and Dr. John and all those people from, you know, way, way long ago here in New Orleans. So there was blending, but it was in the sense that they were welcome and they were sharing sort of like a smorgasbord type thing where everybody brings their own dish for the potluck. And you get to taste it and you get to try it out. And it's very respectful. It's not, again, like you said, somebody doesn't know, oh, well, we don't have any Irish people here. So we're going to make some coal cannon anyway, like those bad recipes for <laughs> right. potato salad that those people are always, black people are always posting. <laughs> Look, they put candy corn in the potato salad. <laughs> it's just like, what? You know, so I think that if you have somebody that's from that culture and they're sharing, you know, this happens a lot with musicians, you know. Mm -hmm. I think we get a lot of questions here because I belong to the Voodoo Spiritual Temple here on 1428 North Rampart with Priestess Miriam. And when she started, she had three temple drummers and two of them were Cuban, Santeros. So when they were doing the New Orleans rhythms, some of the Cuban rhythms would slip in. And anybody who's a musician, certainly jazz, New Orleans type thing, you know, different nuances to rhythm slip in, different things go through their heads. So we started honoring some of the Orisha in our practice because we had two Santeros that were there with us every ceremony that we did. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like, oh, well, we think this is cool. So we're going to stick this in here. You know, we would never have done that. But to not add those Orisha into our ceremonies would have been disrespectful to the Santeros that were there. So that to me is this kind of diffusion. Whereas, mm -hmm. you know, again, in New Orleans, the people were really here. We have a gumbo type thing, you know, some 
French influences, some Spanish influences, some native influences, and they all come together. And I think that in those instances, it's okay. What it's not okay is if people are like, I've, I've been to ceremonies where like, well, we're going to open this up to El Agua and to Legba and to Ganesh and to every other damn God of the crossroads that we can think of. And maybe they don't get along. Like maybe they, they don't, you know, maybe you don't have what you need for them at that party. You wouldn't invite just, okay, well, I'm having a party. I got to have an Indian person and a Haitian person <laughs> and a Cuban person. And we'll just grab some mofos off the street and drag them in here. Or, you know, like we wouldn't do that. But if they're there and they're part of what's already happening and they, you know, willfully and, and openly share what they know and allow us to continue in that tradition, then I think that's a different thing. It's complicated. It's not like I can just say, oh, here's my cosign stamp for what you're doing, because each situation is different, you know, and both yeah. of those gentlemen have passed now. So they're not around, but we still do it. And I do it in my practices, you know, just be, to honor them. And also because I have godchildren that are Santeros and Santeras. How could I not honor that? That's them. They're at the ceremony. That's part of them. You know, it's not mm -hmm. the same thing, but we make sure that they have an offering or they get mentioned or remembered in a way so that they don't feel not included. Yeah, it sounds very nuanced there. Uh, you know, yes. a while back on Twitter, there was no nuance November. <laughs> and yeah, it sounds like it's highly nuanced. Mm -hmm. yeah. It is definitely, definitely, especially here in New Orleans. I mm -hmm. think, you know, we just have so many different influences. Well, and I think what's really important is that when you talk about this, it, there was a, a reason why you decided to go that direction. And there was purpose and there was context for it that kind of required that versus what I think we're seeing a lot of these days is, I don't know, I felt like it. Right. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. And that's the big difference I feel is that no, it made sense for where you were, for who was involved, for what was happening there. There was reason. And I think that that's something that I think a lot more people should kind of wait for beyond just, I wanted to. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm initiated in Santo and also in Haitian Vodou. And that was because I was going through a really difficult situation with the death of my daughter. And we had a legal case back to me in justice. We had a legal case and it was important to me that my daughter not die in vain, you know? So mm -hmm. I had a friend that was a Santera and she went, okay, well, I'll give you a reading. And the reading says that we can do this and you can win the case. And, you know, and we did, you know, but then I had to initiate. And then I was teaching somewhere at a UU church. I was teaching like tarot and intro to astrology. And they said, oh, we got a new minister. You're going to love her. She's a Haitian mambo and a drummer. And I was like, what? You know? <laughs> And I was the first person she ever initiated, you know, and just everything that I was dealing with through such a hard time. You know, she was the person who was there for me every Sunday. We'd have little drum jams on Sunday during service. It was great. <laughs> Somebody got possessed in yoga class. It was fantastic. But, you know, like <laughs> we made it work. It was beautiful, but I did not go out. And I think people read my bio and they think, what? She's initiated in all these things. I did not go out and try and be like, oh, I'm going to get all the initiations and then I'll be the queen. You know, right. <laughs> it didn't have nothing to do with that. It had to do with somebody who was dead. I wanted justice. And these people helped me get justice in a very important situation because I didn't want that to happen to anybody else. You know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel like people sometimes treat... 
either spirits or initiations or spiritual titles like Pokemon, you know, got to catch them all, got to have like all of them. And again, it comes back to reason, having a reason. And I think that's something that's really important that we keep going back to here. So good. Yeah. Yeah. And I loved and trusted all of my godparents. I really did. You know, um, two of them are no longer with us, but they really were family to to me, I know a lot of people who join a house and then leave the next week because they don't like them or whatever. And I'm like, that's not what it's about. This is a spiritual family, you know, and that part of it, that's the real danger, I think, to running out and making stuff up and not having a, you know, it's like you're trying to raise yourself or trying to birth yourself. Like that's not possible. We have spiritual parents so they can help us through all our difficult situations and everybody's situations are going to be different. You know what I mean? One person's going to want this situation. One person's going to want this, you know, so it's tailored to the individual. You, you get a reading, you talk to these people, you understand what they went through. You, you know, my Santo godmother, it was, it was so ironic to me because we had gone to the same very small school in Brooklyn, but she's a couple of years older than me. So she left before I even got there. So <laughs> it was hilarious to me that it was like I was destined to meet this woman anyway, you know, like, no, I didn't meet her when I was, you know, 14, because that would have been the wrong time. But I met her when I needed her. And I found that she had so many things in common with me, you know, just she had PTSD because she'd lost her husband in front of her. I lost my daughter in front of me, you know, like so many things that it was just sort of perfect that I join her family and become part of her family. Cause it's like, she was family anyway. Mm. Yeah. That's so beautiful. I'm, yeah. I'm so glad that you find that connection too, through this work. I think that's so important. Yeah. And I think that's the danger of rushing out and trying to grab it yourself. You know, you won't know what you're getting and you won't have these connections. What I tell people to pray for is to pray for the right guidance in the situation. You know, my godmother, who I just mentioned, Yeye Oshuna Lakaye, she used to say next right action. So just do the next right thing that might be getting up and taking a shower or eating something or whatever. You don't have to get everything all at once. There's a tiny step make towards your plan towards your goals that's best for you and that's what it's all about absolutely, absolutely. yeah one step at a time yeah yeah mm. next right action we were calling it the new nra next right action <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> i love that that's beautiful yeah, yeah. um so with this, you're kind of talking about kind of being initiated into some of these practices. And, and, and these are practices that we would be, that we would consider closed. Um, so what does it mean when a practice is closed? Does that mean that no one can join ever? Does it mean that under certain criteria we can join? Um, what, what, what does this, what does this look like when we have a closed practice? I mean, for me, it is more about an initiatory practice. So mm -hmm. that is that you have to find a spiritual teacher, godparents, like I mentioned, they're going to function as your spiritual godparents in matters of everything, you know, money, health, home, children, relationships, all of that stuff. You know, you're going to go to them for guidance. And also they're going to tell you when you need to get initiated, but it's a family. So there's responsibilities too. So it's, I think some people decide not to do it because it's too much much trouble. Uh, my sister had a friend in New York who initiated into a Santo house where most people know that, that it, 
there's a Santo initiation where you spend a year in whites. So yeah. her friend had a year in whites, but one stipulation was they couldn't touch anybody. So this person living in New York City could not touch anybody for a year in addition to <laughs> spending a year in whites. So it's hardcore. It's legit, you know, but the benefits definitely outweigh the, you know, the, for me anyway, the difficulty. These, you know, it's like, oh, leave this offering. You know, if you're married, then you can touch your partner, you know, or your spouse. It's not like that. But if you're not, no, you can't go out and just have a bunch of drunken indiscriminate sex because you're focusing on your spirituality. You're focusing on this path and, and that mm -hmm. requires sacrifices, you know. Mm -hmm. That is that is intense. But also I, I love that amount of commitment to it and that show of being willing to do the thing. And what, what I'm seeing a lot of, especially when it comes to these kind of what we call, you know, ATRs or African traditional religions is that people go like, oh, well, I want to be a part of this, but also that seems too hard. So I'm going to skip that part or no one in my area can initiate me. So I'm just going to say, I don't need initiation, um, things like that. And is, I, I, I don't think it works like that. Am I correct in, in assuming that you can't just You're go, correct. Mm -hmm. I'm laughing hysterically. No, every day I get another thing. Like there's some big phone book of uh, decent practitioners that I can look up and go, oh yeah, go here. You know, honestly, there aren't that very many people I would recommend because a lot of people do not do things above board. You know, um, one of my godmothers used to say, these people are crazy. They can't make a living any other way. <laughs> so there's a lot of people... <laughs> That have that kind of like mentally ill village shaman thing going on and uh, they're working it and they're not necessarily giving the best advice. There's a lot of predators, you know, because, again, it's like a parent child relationship. So mm -hmm. a lot of people abuse it. But I mean, in my case, well, in one instance, I actually manifested a mambo right in my backyard. That was amazing. Um, that wasn't easy. Uh, but my other godparents, I would travel over a thousand miles, you know, to go see them for initiations and things like that. And, you know, it takes commitment. Yes. Did I not have all the money all the time? No, I didn't. When I did have the money, did I do that instead of buy a hot tub or, you know, a pretty dress or something else that wasn't food and shelter, you know? And honestly, if I thought it was a life or death situation, I would probably pay my godparents before I paid for food and shelter. Cause you've got like a little bit of a leeway with that, you know, <laughs> like they give you a 90 day shut off or like, I've known people have been in foreclosure for years, you know, like, so <laughs> you can go to eviction court for years, you know? So like, if it was life or death, then you are going to make that journey and it's not easy. But the point is you have to trust this person person a hundred percent. So better to travel a thousand miles to trust somebody implicitly, you know, this is your life that you're talking about than to just get some crappy person down the street who doesn't know what they're talking about. Some of these initiations cost thousands of dollars. So if you go to the wrong person, nah, you're going to have to do it over again. And I know a lot of people who went and spent $10,000 and then had to turn around and spend $10,000 again because their mm. people weren't genuine. Gosh. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not cheap. No. Not cheap. No. Mm. But, but again, if it's life or death, it. you know what I mean? You pay your doctors. I had somebody say to me once, well, I don't pay my doctor. And I was like, fool, somebody pays that doctor. You've got insurance. If you look at the actual <laughs> right. bill, you know, it's $300 for an aspirin. So <laughs> that they probably ate themselves. So, you know, like, come on. <laughs> somebody's paying and this thing that like spiritual people shouldn't be paid is ridiculous as far as I'm concerned you know everybody else gets paid mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. Uh, it's so interesting. And I think right now, especially where we're so online right now with, with a lot of the spirituality. And so a lot of it has, we've moved away from this sort of group thing or feeling like we need other people in a lot of this, which I think in, in some ways has led us astray. Also in over like COVID and stuff like that, we, we've had to move so much to things like right here, like, like on zoom, um, just out of curiosity off the top of my head, have, have you ever done an initiation via something like zoom or is that not a thing? No, I tell people they have to come here in person. Like we can't do it online. I know some people are doing it online, but I'm not sure, you know, I mean, even getting a reading is something that we don't do long distance. You know, if I go to a bubble owl, you got to be on the mat. Like I will do readings online for people, but it's definitely better in person. Uh, I moved to New Orleans so I could have a big yard. You know, we did a couple of initiations last year outside, you know, everybody was vaxxed and tested and all of that, but there is still that need for the physical presence of it. We talk about Ashe, which is like a sacred universal energy for all things. You hear people nowadays going, Ashe, Ashe. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I heard it in a rap song the other day. And, um, you know, to get that Ashe, you need to be physically present. That's why we have certain ingredients for spells or rituals and things like that. There's no, I've written a couple of posts about there's no substitutes. You know what I mean? You can't just, even the slaves didn't really substitute that much. There's evidence of people going back as early, I think, as, as the, you know, mid 1800s back to Africa to get ritual ingredients from Africa and bring them to Cuba and the U.S. So they had those actual ingredients because substitutes don't work as well you know I mean as everybody knows now gluten-free flour I mean you know we guess almost <laughs> got to do it but that don't taste like regular flour like right <laughs> doesn't matter what they do to it. <laughs> we can eat it but it's not the same thing not the same thing absolutely know. that's something that I ran into a lot is this discussion about substitutions and I always get all this blowback online, like, well, the magic comes from within or, or, you know, if, if you're a powerful witch, then you can use anything and make it work. And it's like, if this, like one of the things that, that we kind of run into the most is, is we part of our, one of our slogans unofficially for the podcast is pee on it. Um, and so when people will be like, um, like, I don't want to use urine. Can I use like uh, stale beer or something like that? Which is like something that gets toted around a lot as, as a, as a substitute for urine. And I'm just like, no. <laughs> right. I also feel that when we're doing substitutions, it does a disservice to the spirit of the plant. You know, if we're talking about plants, you know, like I see a lot uh, online of where it's like rosemary can be a substitute for any herb. And it's like, well, what about the spirit of the plant? that you're supposed to be calling upon. I don't know. I just find that that substitution stuff just doesn't really seem to work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I agree completely. I, and all my ancestors are offended that somebody wants to use stale beer instead of pee. Right. <laughs> I feel like they all pissed on people. You know, <laughs> it doesn't matter. My hoodoo ancestors, my Sicilian <laughs> ancestors, my Scottish ancestors, they were fond of pissing on people. And, uh, mm-hmm. You know, it really says something, you know, like you're at a bar, somebody pisses on you or they spill stale beer on you. 
huh, which one <laughs> is really going to get you upset and worked up? I think the pisses. No, that's but funny. it's necessary sometimes. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I, that, that's the other problem I have with a lot of these people with the glass of water or whatever. I mean, why don't they just take their glass of water and just shut up about it? I'm sorry. That's where I am about that. You don't need to disputate with me about what I put in my stuff. If you can manifest anything you want with that glass of water, go take that, keep it far away from me, and I'm just going to keep doing what I do. You know, I mean, the problem with the ATRs is that there's no, you know, there's no big book, there's no authority, there's no Bible. So there is going to be differences in traditions and differences in spell work and differences and things like that, you know, but it's certainly not my opinion that you can substitute pretty much really anything, you know, I mean, what I do if I don't have the ingredients that I need is I start out with other ingredients and I do a yes, no reading. Okay. I have, you know, dill. Can I use this in the spell? Will it bring about the desired thing that I'm trying to bring about as opposed to, I open my spell book. It says I need one of my godsons was like, I need to find civet. I was like, why did you ask about a spell where you've got to express the anal glands of a cat? Like, (laughs) I know you want some hot dick. Because that's what Civet will give you. But uh, <laughs> good to know. There's other ways to get hot dick without having to deal with that kind of animal intrusion kind of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. I always, whenever people get like kind of squeamish around these things, I just always go, are we doing witchcraft or not? You know, pee in the jar. Like, yeah. you know? It's true. It's definitely true. You know, I mean, those old jokes on Buffy about yak cheese in her bra, you know, like there's definitely a whole bunch of weird things you have to do if you're a witch. And to me, that's how much do you want it? You know, I've certainly had clients and students tell me, oh, well, I can't leave this offering because somebody might see me. Somebody might see you what? Somebody might see you leaving a cup of coffee at the crossroads. Somebody might see you, you know, my Santo priestess, it had to be like sometimes, you know, we did do chickens under certain circumstances. Okay, well, you've got to leave a chicken. I remember once my godmother had to throw a chicken on top of a bank. So, okay, I have to leave a dead chicken on top of a bank. Worst case scenario, maybe there'd be a fine or something, you know, but how bad do you want it? Is this a life or death thing? Is this gonna something you really, really, if you don't need it, then don't even bother to do the damn working. You know, mm-hmm. if you do need it, then be willing to go to the woods with a dead chicken or throw it on top of a bank or some other really weird thing. When I was writing the water magic book, I said that they should, you know, leave an offering of water, you know, at the river's edge. And they're like, well, what about people in Flint? And I'm like, I feel really bad for people who don't have clean water, but I need to offer something. <laughs> and offering water to water seems like pretty minimal type of kind of interference thing going on right there, you know, but people yeah. get very offended. Feathers ruffled all of that. Well, and I'd rather give water to water than, you know, we had, we had Anwen on and she was talking about, you know, people leaving like store bought flowers in rivers and they're full of chemicals and pesticides and things like that. And it's like giving water to water seems Perfect and non-polluting and so simple and absolutely. Yeah. And my response to that is like, so what are you doing to fight, you know, toxins in the flower industry? What are you doing to fight toxins throughout the rest of our lives? You know, just attacking somebody who decides to leave a flower at the river seems like that energy could be better spent some other way. 
You know, mm-hmm. I mean, those flowers are making their way into landfills or into water anyway. So it's it's not me and my magic that's right. driving this force. What's driving this force is a toxic industry that's been in place for over 100 years. You know, mm-hmm. that's what we need to look at. That's what we need to fight. Also true. Very true. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It's these big systems that are bringing like the toxic stuff into the world in the first place. I think that's something too that we're kind of noticing with a lot of these systems is that it's not necessarily the individual people who are participating in it, but sort of like the systems that brought it to us in the first place. Like like this yes. didn't have to be toxic to begin with, let alone now right. that we're down here by the river. Um, so that is that is an excellent point here. So as we kind of come here towards the end of our first hour here, um, I wanna ask you a couple more questions here. Um, the first thing is, what are some of the things that we, that you feel like we're doing right when it comes to, um, you know, combating cultural misappropriation with, within the magical community? Some of the things that we're getting right and that we should continue to do. I think that there's definitely more focus on learning the proper history about traditions. And, and I can't mm-hmm. stress that importance enough, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, I think the days of, uh, I won't say which publisher, but there was a large major publisher where I was talking to some of their old school authors and they said they just had a pseudonym fake name that they used to publish books under when they nobody wanted to admit that they were writing a bunch of crap. So I was like, oh, that explains a lot. <laughs> yeah. So I think we're moving away that kind of like fake stuff just to, you know, I mean, even some of the big spiritual supply houses, they started out as uh, cleaning product companies and realized that you could package this as magical floor wash and then charge five times as much for it. I think we're moving away from that, you know, which I think is really good. I think there's a focus on the ancestors which I think is really good because everybody can start with their ancestors. Even if you are worried about appropriation, start in your own backyard, Mm -hmm. figure out who those people were, figure out how to honor them and what they did. And yeah, in some places it's going to be a little bit more reconstruction. You know, I remember when I started out in anthropology, you know, we thought there were no more Taino people left. Now we've DNA tested people. Turns out there's a ton of Taino people <laughs> that have that DNA running in their blood. And I think that's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing, you know, so we really can discover who we are and where we came from and sort of learn more about that and how to honor that because they're responsible for getting us here. They want us to succeed and we can tap into that to be the best people we can be. Beautiful. Mm. Definitely. I love that. And that's something, like you said, we can all do that. We can all start in our backyard. We can all, we all have ancestors. We all have people we came from, um, you know, say hello to them in that. So on the flip side, what are things that you feel like we may be doing incorrectly, or maybe something that you're like, we're going a little to the left here, or maybe something that we want to maybe change or or rethink or or any advice on things that you feel like we might not be doing well in the cultural misappropriation discussion? Oh, I think there's a lot. (laughs) I think I still find a lot of people asking me and other BIPOC to sort of co-sign their behavior. Mm -hmm. That happens a lot. Um, 
And I think even within the BIPOC community, I see a lot of people asking people to co-sign their behavior if it's non-traditional, if it's not initiated, if it's whatever, you know, and I think those rules are there for a reason, no matter what your background is, that we do things this way for a reason. So any deviation from that, I have a problem with. Um, Mm -hmm. I think everybody deciding they're an expert is difficult, you know, I mean, and I don't say that from a place of I'm a big pompous witch or anything. I say that because there's a big difference between someone who's been a cook for, you know, two years or three years and one who's been, you know, training with master chefs their whole life, you know, and I'm going to want to eat at that Michelin star restaurant where people have been training their whole life. And I'm not going to want to eat what the three-year-old I'm watching made in the backyard with some sticks and some mud and some twigs. It looks great, sweetie, but I'm not going to eat it because it can make all of us sick. Mm -hmm. And, and there's a right way to do things. And, and, you know, and, and that's just part of growing up. And, and that's, you know, that's the beauty of it. You know, I I think I was sad about it when I, I certainly, before I was initiated, I would go to ceremonies and I'd have to sit out and stuff like that. And I would get so mad, you know, I mean, as a menstruating female, there's a lot of things you can't do in the ATRs that used to piss me off, not because there was an equality, but that was a healing and rejuvenation time for people mm-hmm. who are still bleeding. And that's, and you're supposed to focus on your children if you have them and other children and your body and not doing things for other people. But I used to get so damn butthurt about that. I would just get so annoyed. I would just be like, and here I am again, sitting here watching everybody else do everything badly. I can't take it. And that was my lesson. That's your lesson until you're not upset about it anymore. And then you can move on. So I think that that's something people have to learn too. You know, not everybody's destined to be, you know, priest or priestess and that's okay. You know, if anything, I think you should consider yourself lucky. You know, I mentioned uh, Yayo Shun. She used to tell me she wouldn't initiate anybody until they absolutely didn't want it. And that was because they knew what went into it. They knew that it meant that people were going to be, you know, messaging you at three o'clock in the morning and, uh, you know, with all kinds of problems, mental, physical, emotional, everything, everything you can think of, you know, (laughs) that's been on the other end of my phone. And uh, sometimes it's not fun. Sometimes it's sad. Yeah. Yeah. And I I like what you're talking about, too, is everyone suddenly being an expert. And that was something too, I was talking about this morning is that's when so much misinformation comes into play is that people look at something for five seconds, they form an opinion or, or think that they have an understanding of it. They make an infographic and then now they are, you know, an authority about it online two seconds later. And then that's where we end up really heading into misinformation very quickly. And so I think what a lot of folks need to simply do is just be okay not knowing and then admit, I don't know. Right. So I'm not going to talk about that or form an opinion on that or something like that because I'm not educated in that or I'm not educated enough to speak about that, you know. Sure. And like I said before, there's a lot better things they could spend their time on. You know, it makes me sad, all these demented witch wars and cancel culture and all of that stuff. Like, again, there's starving children out there. Right. You're going to be upset about, you know, somebody used garden sage. Like, no, I don't think we should appropriate, (laughs) you know, ritual sage at all. But somebody getting some spices from the the supermarket is a whole nother different thing. And if you're going to get upset about something again, get upset about the toxicness of 
the soil or, you know, the planet or something. This, this is not something to spend all your time and energy. It reminds me of prison logic. You know what I mean? Like they see an influencer that's got a bunch of followers. They're going to take them down and then they're going to be the big person on the block, mm-hmm. you know, and, and uh, I'm not in prison. And <laughs> <laughs> not wood. And I'm, I don't play like that, you know? absolutely absolutely i've been feeling very similarly lately where i'm like i'm just looking at a lot of what's going on out there in the world and i'm just i'm so very tired (laughs) oh yes yeah yes 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 you know and we've seen we've seen it so many times too again people get upset about that little thing but they don't get upset about toxic people in the community they don't get upset about abusers in the community they don't like you know so many of these things you know that i think people should be concerned about they don't really seem to be concerned about you know mm-hmm. and uh that makes me sad too it really does absolutely well and i think too a lot of it is you know we were asked, you know, each and every one of us to inspect ourselves and the roles that we play in oppression and racism and things like that. And instead of doing that because it was hard and it was scary, we then decided to scream at strangers on the internet about little things that they're doing that we've decided are are not okay or whatever, as a means of avoiding doing that own personal <laughs> kind of how, how do we fit into this sort of a thing? It ended up becoming kind of deflection. Like, Oh, if I yell at somebody else on the internet for doing something that I've perceived as racist, then I don't have to do my own <laughs> sort of work. And I, I think that that's important that we, we don't use that as a, as a way to get out of doing our own inspection. Yeah. I mean, when, again, when that whole, everybody got excited, call your black friend week, you know, like (laughs) I saw so many people, so many white, you know, fellow bloggers of mine, fellow authors writing about like, oh, here's what you're doing wrong. Wait a minute. What are you doing wrong? You know, and I would look at their articles or their posts and there would be no mention of, of BIPOC and what they were asking for or really calling for in this moment. It was more about their own sort of, of, you know, platform to stand on. And I would watch them get more traffic. I would watch them get more attention. And it really started to make me nauseous. You know, finally, by the end, I was like, just buy me a pizza. Stop talking to me and just buy me a pizza. And we did actually, we got pizzas from London. I was like, like, well, you can't fix, you know, we're not going to get reparations or anything. I don't think in my lifetime, but y'all can send me a pizza if you want to. That'll make me feel better slightly. Yeah. (laughs) That's what I want. Mm. I love that. But people would go, ha, ha, ha. And I'm like, no, I'm fucking serious. <laughs> That's what I want. Like for real. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Absolutely. And if, and if anyone who's listening to this, feel free to send all of us pizza. Because yeah. now, now I'm getting hungry because that sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Well, coming off of the idea of prison logic, we, we are not in prison yet, but the day is still young. And we have another half of this interview to do. So for all of you who are listening, we will be back next week with the second half of our interview here with Lilith Dorsey, where we will be talking about all things voodoo. And so in the meantime, remember... Do witchcraft. Do it. Support for this podcast comes from our listeners. If you would like to support Invoking Witchcraft with a one-time donation... 
please go to invokingwitchcraft.com backslash donate. Or if you'd like to become a premium listener, join the coven at invokingwitchcraft.com backslash coven. There you'll get access to our exclusive Facebook group for discussion and connection, as well as access to occasional workshops. We hope to see you there. 